Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to experience the Gut Check Project, talking science, health, and innovation that you can actually use. But this isn't just another health show. We're here to have fun and make your time enjoyable. Well, while you are enjoying yourself, know that even though the GCP covers some health topics with healthcare pros, we are not your doctors. So use our show to entertain your mind and not for medical advice. And now, here are your hosts of the Gut Check Project, Dr. Ken Brown and Eric Rieger. Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I'm Eric Rieger, your host, joined by this awesome guy, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, what's up, man? What's going on? Today's episode, episode 84. Uh, it'll be a little quicker one, but something came out and we got to start addressing a couple really interesting science and a couple different uh, news articles that I think we can't wait on. We just got to get out there. We're going to hit the FDA. We got a little story about Ryan Reynolds and a little bit of update from Mark Pimentel, right? Yeah, we've got, we were privy to an accepted article on SIBO. So if you know anybody that has SIBO, you're going to want to hear this that is not in publication yet. So this is the first you will hear about it. So if we had a wheel, we could spin it and then you could say that you want a, it to land on something. Which article would you like for it to start with? I want to start with, oh, it says that. Eric, what have you been up to? Oh, well, what have I been up to today? I'm going to leave this afternoon to go hang out with the boys. And not only am I going to see my boys, there's a good chance I'm going to see your son yes, tomorrow. Sir. Yes, sir. In Lubbock, of course, my kids go to tech. Your son's about to attend UT, but he's playing a pro tournament on the tech campus. And if he wins today, he'll be there tomorrow, and I get to check in on he Lucas. He will be in the finals, yes. So, so that's what's going on with us. Lucas uh, is in... Lubbock playing his first technically pro tournament. It's a futures tournament. And him and his doubles partner, Aiden Kim, which is awesome because it's crazy to sit there and think that him and Aiden like won 12s nationals yeah. and 14s nationals. And they've like won multiple national tournaments together when they were real little. And now they're playing together in Lucas's first pro tournament. So he's got some ATP pro points. So super excited about that. And it happens to be in a weekend. You're going to be there. And UT is going to go play Texas Tech and football I this weekend. I always forget that they even have a team. I knew Tech had a team. I didn't know that Texas had anything. But, uh, yeah, the boys and I are going to cook out. we got a new grill at, uh, at Gage's house. Uh, he and his fiance have got a spread they're going to put together. And uh, Mac is bringing some friends over. So between the game, hanging out tonight, and then uh, seeing, seeing me off on Sunday, I think we've got a – Full weekend planned, and then hopefully, hopefully, checking in on Lucas. That's awesome. Yeah, totally. So, uh, yeah, my weekend is just going to be uh, riveted watching uh, Texas play Texas Tech and football and watching Lucas play a little tennis. So. Nice. Good. Awesome. Uh, one of the stories that, that I wanted to bring up, just because it shows how important it is, and it seems like all my patients are bringing this up, and it's really funny. So, oh, I've, I turned into, on Hulu, there's actually, it's like a little guilty pleasure I have. There is a show called Wrexham, W-R-E-X-H-A-M. Okay. It's really kind of interesting. It's, I guess it's kind of like a documentary, but they're going forward, uh, you know, putting it together because it's, uh, they're just following to see what happens. Rob McElhaney of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> awesome for even making that show. Yes. And Ryan Reynolds became social media friends, and they actually <laughs> developed that friendship. And somehow, one of the writers on Rob McElhaney's staff is like a huge soccer fan, okay. football over there. Right. And they got to talking about it, and then whenever they had a chance, they were watching it, and somehow it came up that he convinced Ryan Reynolds, which is really funny, because he's like, I knew that I wanted to 
purchase one of these struggling teams, but I have TV money. I don't have movie money, superhero money, gin money, mint mobile money. And he's like, golly, how many companies does this guy own? So Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds purchased a football club in Wales called Wrexham. And it's really cool because it reminds McElhaney of the Philadelphia Eagles, where it's mm-hmm. just kind of a gritty town and all yeah. this other stuff. So anyways, I'm kind of following that. And then this news story pops up and uh, Keith actually put it on my Facebook page, the link to it. Basically, Rob McElhaney and Ryan Reynolds turned 45. They made a bet and the loser had to have their colonoscopy filmed. Oh, nice. Yeah. Not, not have a colonoscopy, but have it filmed. Have it filmed. Okay. Both guys got a colonoscopy because they turned 45. Nice. So basically, Ryan Reynolds filmed his first colonoscopy. It's on YouTube, <laughs> and I guess the campaign is called Lead From Behind. He uh, went to New York and figures that he could, um, went to New York and got his colonoscopy. According to the, when he was being interviewed, I thought this was pretty funny. Uh, Reynolds feigns a lack of recollection of the terms of the wager that led to the video. And McElhaney then explains the wager and reminds him he did all that while speaking Welsh. That is because they had a bet that he couldn't learn Welsh. (laughs) (laughs) So he responded in in Welsh that he could not remember about the terms of the bet. So anyways, he had it done. He ended up having a colonoscopy and it was great because this is exactly what I tell my patients. One-stop shop, you get that polyp removed, and it's a potentially uh, life-saving event. And the doctor said, this was potentially life-saving for you. I'm not kidding. I'm not being overly dramatic, the doctor told Reynolds. So it is like that. So this is exactly why we do this. Remember, age 45 now is the screening time. This is the only screening examination that is one-stop shop. If they find a precancerous lesion called a polyp, we can take it out. Unlike other methods that may or may not even be accurate that just say either you have cancer or you don't. And what I'm referring to is ColoGuard, which I'm very biased against based on the data. But if it gets you to get your colonoscopy, then that's okay. So I just love that some of these really popular stars are you know putting their butt forward and saying, I'm 45, I'm going to go do it. And so right on to those guys. And it's a really likable show, and I'm kind of into it. So I'm kind of curious to see if they can turn this team around. So Well, and that's not anything that we take lightly either. I got my first colonoscopy last year while still 45, and it's something that we've encouraged our family members to do. And then, of course, that doesn't leave out those who happen to have other family members who've had serious complications with GI cancers before. You may need to talk with a gastroenterologist and find out maybe you should even get screened earlier than 45. But now 45 is the old 50. 45 is, oh, I'm sorry. 45 is the new 50. Is the new 50, correct. Um, it, yeah. uh, the, the old number was 50, but unfortunately the incidence of cancer and precancerous polyps showing up earlier is just, it's just a fact of life. Yeah. And so I've had three colonoscopies done. One of them, I did exactly what Rob did, but I stayed awake for mine and I filmed it. You can go to YouTube and see that on Kenneth Brown MD. My, uh, that's what it's like to get a colonoscopy. If you have any trepidation about doing it, you can watch me do it and see how easy it is and how important it is. And it is life-saving. So once again, super important to get that done. What article do you have that you wanted to talk about? So let's read off the top here. I did mention that we uh, one of the subjects that we have was going to be about the FDA. Uh, very good, short, but, but really thorough synopsis by uh, Michael White of uh, University of Connecticut School of Pharmacy. Title is, Why is the FDA funded in part 
by the companies that it regulates? And this is an excellent question. It's a great title. No shit. Why? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it obviously was a process. It's not how the FDA started. So when the FDA, let's just do a little background. I'm going to look down here at the notes here to, uh, to talk about it. But effectively, the FDA has moved entirely as it began as a taxpayer-funded entity to one that's increasingly funded by user fees. And user fees are generated by those who submit their products, their devices, and their drugs to the FDA to simply be approved. That becomes problematic, and we'll get into that here in just a moment. So closely or close to 45% of today's budget comes from those user fees. Like I said, when it very first started, the FDA and its foundation, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of 1938, was 100% taxpayer-funded. Its only purpose was altruistic for the American taxpayer. Essentially, their big breakthrough on why they were so important occurred in the 50s. Thalidomide was being used for morning sickness for pregnant women in several different countries. I think it was over 40, yeah, 46 countries were allowing the use of thalidomide throughout the world for pregnant women to use so that they could they could avert morning sickness. The FDA back then felt like that there weren't enough safety data-driven studies to show that it was simply safe for women to consume. Wouldn't you know it, that not long after that and leading into the early 60s, lots of birth defects, lots of birth defects. Mm, and the, the FDA- thalidomide babies, that's yeah. yeah, horrible. And, horrible. And the FDA never approved thalidomide for its use here. So much so, it was, it was noticed around the world. The FDA was heralded for having not given that approval. And then President Kennedy at the time- basically lauded the FDA for saying, man, this is great. You saved all of these unborn children from, uh, from birth defects. That is basically how the FDA functioned all the way until 1992. So why did things change? Yeah, that's not that long ago. What's going on? So what could have happened in the 80s, do you think? What was probably the biggest pressing issue that could have pushed the FDA over the edge uh, where they, maybe they felt overwhelmed and should change their, their price model? It had to do something with the pharmaceutical industry. Definitely. They were in search of a cure for... Oh, AIDS. AIDS. That's so, right. Um, and, of course, draw a whole bunch of lines here, but the, the guy at the helm at the time was, was Fauci. That's right. And so as AIDS patients and AIDS sufferers, beginning in 1981, when it hit the scene, um, they the research and how we were going to treat AIDS is basically we were overwhelmed. They could not meet the demand for research into HIV. How do you prevent HIV from turning into AIDS? And then simply how do you help AIDS patients? Is this where the Dallas Buyers Club movie with Matthew McConaughey starts playing into this? Does Did, did they address that at all in that movie? I... That's a really good movie, and I've seen it a couple of times. I don't know that they talk specifically about that. I do know that that pharmaceuticals were out of reach, though, and they certainly were incredibly expensive. So I would imagine that there has to be some kind of play in there between getting their hands on back then. It was was ever so popular to combine AZT with whatever. A bunch of different combos, but um, I I don't know the direct relationship between that show seemed to be a lot more about cost and access and it seems like the FDA's purpose, at least for changing their model, was more about the research and availability of new deliverables or you know substances to, yeah, to use. So yeah. effectively, in 1992, from increasing pressure, 
And granted, most of that pressure was ginned up by those who were involved in research saying, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't do, we can't meet, we can't form enough, we can't produce enough. And George W. Bush was pressured into signing the, uh, the Prescription Drug User Free Act or Fee Act. So essentially what this hmm. did in 92 is that this made companies that were going to submit a new drug, a new medical device, a new anything, new therapy that would require FDA approval to pay a fee. And now on the surface, that doesn't seem so bad. The issue is, is that the FDA can now and could then issue waivers of those fees. Oh, And so now it becomes a political game. You could feel like, okay, well, if they're going to produce something that they're ultimately going to make money from, then of course, why not pay into part of the research and the investigation around this particular device or this drug? But the issue is, is that companies who are in favor oftentimes don't have that roadblock and maybe a company that could have a drug that might kind of edge somebody out. They would have to pay more fees allowing those to not pay any fees. So it immediately swung into a favorable uh, a favorable system for those who were on the inside and not so favorable for those who were on the outside. Oh, wow. So it turned the FDA, which started as an altruistic thing because of the thalidomide babies, then turns now, just literally overnight, becomes a political scramble. 100%. And... Mm. So of the FDA's total $5.9 billion budget, 45% comes from user fees, but 65% of the funding for human drug regulatory activities are derived from user fees. Those user fee programs must be reauthorized every five years by Congress. And that would remain, that agreement remained in, uh, into effect until September of 2022 this month this is why a lot of this is becoming so repeat that last part again every five years the congress does what they have to reapprove the funding which is broken down so over time other user fees uh, for generic over-the-counter biosimilar which means they can be grandfathered in uh, animal and animal generic drugs as well as those for medical devices was created so this is basically the avenue. Why is it that we have to pay this fee? Well, it's obvious you need to pay the fee because these are the things that the FDA approves. And if 45% comes from user fees, well, then that means that 55% comes from the, um, uh, the taxpayer. But 65% of the funding for human drug regulatory activities are derived from those user fees which are paid in. So these user fee programs must be reauthorized every five years by Congress, and the current one expires this month. And there, there's a big revisit on should we keep depending upon user fees as the main or as, as such an important pillar for funding the FDA. Those within the FDA and they have a job and want job security are going to say, well, absolutely, we should grow that. Because there's only two revenue streams here, right? User fees and taxes. And Congress has to approve those which fall outside of taxes. And guess what else Congress has to approve? Taxes. Oh, geez. So it it becomes a a conundrum. Um, Well, then, like, thinking about this, and so immediately when we have been in this space, when we were looking at uh, doing some product development and everything, if you're going to do an NDI, a new dietary ingredient, or an IND, investigational new drug, the fees absolutely prohibit 
anything but a major corporation for actually from actually playing. Not only that, and not included in this article, but who gets most of the waivers? It's those who submit the most. I mean, they get breaks because they've submitted something else. You almost get like credit for other oh, things that you so paid into. It's like it. okay, so we did this, we paid that. Now we're you. It's a good old boy network at this point. Yeah, sure. And then when I, I really emphasized biosimilar, mm-hmm. biosimilar means. We've just had a particular vaccine put in. This one isn't that much different. Surely it could be approved also. That same thing happens in medical devices. If you haven't seen The Bleeding Edge on Netflix, oh, that's worth right. a watch. And you can see the danger of grandfathering in devices when they haven't simply been checked for either different formations, formulations, uh, content of what the metals are that are in hip, uh, hip replacements, mesh, there, there, there's a bunch of different problems with things just being grandfathered in and being assumed a safety profile when, in fact, it doesn't exist. But let's look at something real hmm. quick before we finish this topic, and that is uh, have the user fees worked? And I love this summation that, um, that uh, uh, Michael White put together, but the performance measures are something that the FDA says that they're going to do. So essentially, they're going to give uh, KPI or key, perfect, uh, key performance metrics for something to perform by and that they are the ones who keep up with that performance and then they can grade how well did it work well because of the additional funding generated by user fees and performance measures that the fda has to meet the fda is quicker and more willing to discuss what it wants to see in the application with its manufacturers you're almost taking down the barrier of entry because you're kind of saying you're kind of walking people through the process a little bit it would be really nice if you added this in here it might be great if you did this over here because now you're generating more work for your department it also Mm. offers clearer guidance for manufacturers so in 1987 for instance this could be seen as good and bad it took 29 months from the time a new drug application was uh, submitted uh, for the fda to decide whether to approve that medication in the u.s in 2014 it took 13 months and by 2018 it was down to 10 months like i said could be good could be bad it doesn't necessarily mean that you are giving a full review, but it also means that you might be bringing something to market which is desperately needed for someone who is suffering. So there's good and there's bad, but changes in more recent years have also increased the number of standard new drug applications for the, that were approved the first time around. 38% were approved the first time around in 2005. 61% first-time application drugs approved in 2018. Think about that. Whoa. What level of improvement in drug manufacturer outside of AI would we have been able to apply not even in performance? I'm talking strictly in safety measures. You don't, you can't manufacture time. It doesn't matter how well you design something. You simply cannot manufacture time. Yeah, that is a that is a shocking number right there because it just shows that it's really truly a pay to play type thing. Well, you would almost think, well, maybe then maybe that percentage went up because the number of drugs submitted went down, so they're just getting better at sub- at submitting uh, drugs, right? It's actually the opposite. The number of drugs submitted between the early to, uh, early two thousand and two thousand eighteen is almost threefold. What? Yeah. So think of that. 
three. Well, what I'm shocked about that is knowing that the outrageous price that you have to pay to do this, threefold more companies, threefold more. What if you're not paying that price? What if you're getting that waiver? Oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, it's still one department. So, and I, I, I wish I had the exact number. I know it's, well, I, the article I read outside of this one uh, said that it was uh, almost threefold. So that could be a range that could be 2.6. I don't know that exact number. I wish I had it uh, available, but almost three times the number. And you've gone from a percentage of approval from, what was it? Uh, 38% to 61. That, that doesn't jive. Not in 18 years. No, considering why it was started, that we made this ginormous mistake with thalidomide, and now there's the potential for these other things to come through, which we won't know the real ramifications for years later. Let's don't even get me started on, you know, the whole Vioxx thing, where they kind of oh. saw that there was heart yeah. attacks going on, but they realized they could take, they could make a ginormous profit until they were pulled off. They're like, well, we're going to, we're going to pay back our investors in this. We're going to get our stockholders the money that they have there. If you, if you haven't seen it yet, go definitely check out dope sick because that really explains a whole lot of how the FDA can be manipulated by companies supplying data. And this doesn't even mean that the FDA even knows that there's something going on. They have to evaluate if something is safe by the data that's being given by the company. It isn't like, here's our raw data. You go ahead and take a look at it. They're like, everything else is closed. You make your decision based on this data that we interpreted through our data. And it's safe. Just trust us. It's safe. It's good. Well, there's not only that. It's safe. It's trust us. It's good. It's a hard one to swallow whenever you can actually, to me, it's a hard one to swallow. Whenever you can actually break down, how does the FDA handle this large volume? I would, I would probably grant that most people were unfamiliar with the, uh, the phrase emergency use authorization oh, until COVID-19. Right. And that's unveiled all kinds of different discrepancies and problems on the way that things have necessarily been approved. Work or not work, I, I'm actually far less concerned about that. I'm just simply talking about safety profile. And so from that perspective, you would think, well, what is the FDA doing as a retrospective for a mechanism around safety? Um, you have to ask yourself, uh, are you as a consumer actually seeing this? But the FDA's biggest and most fierce form of retroactive, retroactively addressing something that's been approved without removing it from the market is simply to issue a black box warning. That sounds important. And it is, but it's really only important to those who happen to see it. Your prescriber and your pharmacist and you as a consumer for the most part, you're simply having to trust the direction. Let's face it, the physician and the pharmacist are being told, well, it's still safe enough for us to keep on the shelf. It's mm -hmm. still safe enough for us to say it's okay for you to recommend it to your patients. These, these are issues. And then knowing that 21% of medications in the early go of black box warnings has now increased to 27%, lets you know that the trend for previously approved but now considered dangerous products which have been allowed to remain on the shelf has only increased in a significant manner by 6% when we now agree that all, well, well over two times the number of drugs have been approved. That's a lot of drugs still available that now say, it's still here. Yeah. Might not be so good for you. Yeah. Anyway, I think that this presents a great case uh, that, uh, that Michael White wrote about 
on why the FDA probably has a glaring hole here on its altruistic approach to protecting the American public from dangerous drugs and devices. I, I wanted to bring this up because I, I've actually looked up a text from a friend who is doing research with a startup company. And it's they said that we're uh, presenting some COVID-19 phase three data. Uh, they showed a life-saving effect in invasive mechanical ventilated patients compared to placebo. And they're applying for an emergency use authorization. Mm. And I was like, wow, what, how many people in each arm? And he's like, it doesn't work that way in EUA. It's just a couple people. Like, you just have to show. That's complete bullshit. Because what, I'm sorry, but that, that what, what they've demonstrated now is that EUA is now an accepted pathway. EUA shouldn't be, you know, it's like, a, okay, okay, how to best put this. <clears throat> You're driving down the highway and there's, there's a traffic jam. And you wait for it to clear and then you know that you need to get to this exit that's that's coming up here. But you, unfortunately, you're delayed a little bit, but you're safely going to make it to the exit as the traffic kind of lets up and you're, you're able to get there. Eventually, if there happens to be some grass off to the side in a feeder road, somebody says, oh, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to veer off here and hop down to the feeder road. And next thing you know, one or two more people follow them. And then after that, suddenly it becomes a dirt path because it's easier to just simply take the non-road over to the feeder road while you're now congesting traffic where it wasn't designed to go and you have accidents. And that's why you have police who now have to monitor the area because people are exiting too early because they're getting around traffic jams. That's an EUA. That is an EUA. That is a, that is a great analogy. And I wonder how many EUAs are being done. I wonder how many, like this is a startup, biotech, that seems like that's the business model. We're going to see if this works in the sickest of the sick. And if it does, and what is the placebo? You're not really doing that. You're like, that's standard of care. If you sign this consent, let's see what happens. And it may be a godsend. Who knows? Maybe amazing. That that is what you and I have never debated. It's never been about that. But the really, really important thing that the FDA is there to do for us as prescribers, for pharmacists for you as consumers is to make certain that no matter what is being offered, that it's not going to make you worse or give you a new problem. Yeah. That's what's being ignored. Safety is being sacrificed in my opinion, but that's the synopsis. on. Well, that. it's crazy because if you get an, an emergency use authorization and a few hundred people were even looked at, let's just say in this case, I want to say that EUA, you can get EUA granted, well, I know for a fact, because we were on with an FDA attorney. I don't know if you were on that call, but Todd? we were, uh, no, 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 no. Um, uh, I forgot here local uh, in Houston. I forgot right. her name. Shit. Sorry. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> she was working with a client who was applying for EUA uh -huh. because they helped one person. That doesn't make sense. I know it's weird, right? But she said, yeah, that's, that's all you need. You need to show efficacy in one person in an otherwise life-threatening situation. Makes sense if it's. If there's nothing available and you're like, look, I saved this one person, I need to be able to give other people this product, that kind of makes sense. So the EUA should be in the most extreme of extreme. But, you know, we're coming at the tail end of this pandemic. Do we really need EUAs being offered at this point? I don't know. Side note, on 60 Minutes, so today is today is a, it's a, it's a Friday. So Friday. Sunday of this week, and then this episode will probably be out a week and a half after this. But um, President Biden mentioned that the pandemic is over. It's been recorded that he, he was, he said in an interview with uh gosh, that guy's name. Oh, Scott Pelley. 
Red Raider. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> throw that in there. But it, he, um, Scott Pelley asked Biden, and Biden said that the pandemic is over. And the Health and Human uh, Services Secretary has challenged that, but can't outright say that the president is incorrect. And it begins to give you a glimpse, the crack, the, well, we're not all on the same page there because yeah. your, your bureaucrats should not have a vested interest in the corporate performance of, of something of this nature that's supposed to help solve a, a health problem. And if the health problem is coming under control, then that should work. In fact, oh, just before I came in here, I was sent a clip by another doctor, oh, uh, Kim, I was working with, yeah. and it was, uh, who's the CDC? Uh, Walensky. Is her name Walensky? Uh, CDC director? Anyway, she was being asked if um, if the pandemic is over, according to, doc, uh, to President Biden, Dr. Biden, according to President Biden, then when will she turn her sights on solving the issue of the fentanyl crisis, which I thought was Ooh, an interesting thing interesting. because... Today, roughly 400 people uh, perish with an associated infection of COVID-19. 400 uh, nationwide. He was able to highlight that, I don't know what the total number is, but he said multiples no, uh, of people of that number are dying from fentanyl every day. Yeah. And so why wouldn't that take precedence if saving American lives is what their issue is? Is. That's a good point. And it was not met. It was met with lots of resistance. Not to get political. In fact, don't don't get me wrong. This was President Bush who signed this art, who, who signed this act, who put it in. So I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. We are just simply highlighting maybe bureaucrats shouldn't be in charge of your health care. And it should be between you and your doctor. Yes. Well, you're, I mean, don't even get me started on all this because it's very frustrating as a physician to be told what you can and cannot do yeah. when, and, you know, to say, well, I'd like a little bit more data on this. And, you know, if I'm not willing to whole separate deal, but that whole EUA, I guess, is there for a reason. And it kind of feels like it was taken advantage of a little bit in the last couple of years. I think exploitation of EUA is exactly what we're watching. Yeah. So anyway. All right. That was a, that's a great synopsis. And thank you for doing that because that's that, that stuff that, that I don't really pay attention to as far as, you know, when it comes to the FDA political stuff and you're much better about staying on top of all that. And so thanks for explaining that. That is interesting. Hmm. That was fun. It's, it just gets you thinking. And I just get really frustrated when you start looking at the history of how some pharmaceutical agencies have been able to skirt around the FDA, have been able to hold back the FDA with withhold data and then make a profit and then go, uh, okay, here's, we'll pay this fine. You know, we made 50 billion. We'll pay the 1 billion in fines. And I mean, I've made it, it I, I've not made it any secret that I, you know, I worked for the pharmaceutical companies long ago and what made me not a fan of them was working for them. I mean, I don't like the process. Oh, I thought you were for sure going to say the ass oil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can retell that story anytime you want. <laughs> I don't remember what episode it was, but basically Eric told the story when he was a drug rep and uh, he involves discussing ass oil in a very graphic uh, way. You, so need, you, you just need to search, search Travis Page gut check project because I don't know the number. We'd have to look that up. But it's, yeah. tra it's Travis and If anybody's Page. good at making memes, do a lot of Travis Page ass oil memes. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not good at those memes. Oh, shoot. What you got? All right. So this, I mean, hot off the press. This is an accepted manuscript to be published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, one of our premier journals, by the godfather of SIBO, Dr. Pimentel, and his group out of Cedars-Sinai. The title of this is Methanogens, Hydrogen Sulfide Producing Bacteria Guide Distinct Gut Microprofiles and Irritable Bowel Syndrome Subtypes. Why is this interesting to me is because if you're unaware of what uh, bacterial overgrowth is or SIBO, SIBO is when you have some sort of motility change. Now, Dr. Pimentel's research has truly focused on those people who have had a gastroenteritis or you get an infection. Right. You go down to, I mean, I don't know, you go to a, a foreign country, you get sick, and then you come back and you never write. Well, his data and what his, uh, his lab is really focused on is showing that when you get sick like that, a percentage of people will develop uh, a antibody to something called the CDTB toxin, which is a toxin that certain bacteria will actually produce, Salmonella, Shigella, Campylobacter, um, I believe. And then you can develop, um, the body makes these antibodies called antivinculin antibodies to try and get rid of this toxin. So there's uh, antibodies being made and the vinculin antibodies happen to have a very close affinity, meaning they fit. Think of like a lock and key, and they can fit in these, uh, they call them electrical conduits, where one impulse goes to the other. These are called the interstitial cells of Kajal. And what it does is it actually blocks that. So think of a cell tower where every once in a while, a big sock gets pulled over the cell mm -hmm. tower, and then it's just non-functioning. So that's what his research looked at, and that's where he really started with this. And he's got a, a blood test that he developed called IBS Check, where you can see if you have these antibodies. And he's worked to develop this breath test uh, called uh, Trio Breast Smart. And what that does is that looks at three different gases methane, hydrogen, and hydrogen sulfide. So this is something that we've known for a little while, thanks to him. And when I've listened to him lecture, he has always discussed how, well, we don't really care what's going on in the colon because it's the small bowel where the problem is. This particular article is a little bit different because he's taken kind of a 180 turn and he's saying, we've looked at the stool of these people that produce these gases. So it isn't, do you have SIBO? It's like, what type of SIBO do you have? And our, what they did is they looked at randomization. They took people that had IBS-C, and then they paired them off on methane positive and methane negative, and then they had IBS-D, and it was hydrogen and hydrogen sulfide and neither, and they just looked at that, then they looked at their stool. Mm -hmm. And so this is an analysis of that. Why I find it very interesting is because for a very long time, people would show up with stool analyses, and they'd say, what do I do with this? And he has always been saying, well, we're looking at the trash necessarily. This could be dead bacteria. We look for the, the RNA and the DNA in this. We do PCR and all these other fancy tricks to see what, what's in your poop. What's, what's going on there? There's all these companies trying to jump on board with this. And it's always been that we have the technology to check it. Do we have the technology to do anything about it? So in this particular article, he says, oh, check this out. Here's what's going on. We found a correlation. So specifically in IBSC subjects that had positive methane breath tests, they actually had a type of 
not even bacteria. It's an archaea that we've known about for a long mm-hmm. time called mm-hmm. methanobrevibacter smithi. That's nothing new. But what he was surprised to find out is those that are methane positive had a distinct gut microtype. They actually did not have a necessarily narrow microbial dysbiosis, which is what he thought that they would see right. compared to hydrogen sulfide producers. And they had an, in, it seemed to be a predominant increase in ruminococciae and crystinocellaceae, which are known syntrophs. And what he means by that is when you have methane, and remember that methane, when you produce methane, it slows everything down. That's how it causes constipation. And it causes this dysmotility and just kind of feeds on itself. Well, the methane is CH4. It needs hydrogen. And what he postulated was that, oh, well, these particular bacteria are donating the hydrogen to the methanobrevibacter. So I'm going to call those syntrophs. And then he looked at hydrogen sulfide. Now, hydrogen sulfide, we know we don't particularly like hydrogen sulfide. And we discussed that in the Indole 3 episode a few episodes ago where we talked about tryptophan. Remember that one? Yeah, that was episode 82. At episode 82, we got a little bit into the fact that hydrogen sulfide um, can be produced. And that's not good because that's been linked to colon cancer and to developing ulcerative colitis. And in this case, he described that, oh, you need to have... um, basically these hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria called fusobacterium and desulfibrio. So that one is interesting because those are reducers where they can make hydrogen sulfide. And then he talked about how if you didn't have the methane positive, you typically did not have this these different types of bacteria growing. I find this really interesting because the data would suggest that hydrogen SIBO is part of the whole microbiome story in IBSD, mm-hmm. but you have to have this methanogen. So now they're describing this as emo, intestinal methanogen overgrowth. So you have to have the M. Smith eye. And now this is the first time ever that the M. Smith eye has these two um, friends that donate the hydrogen. It's really interesting because talking about this, you go, oh, well, let's smoke those guys now. Let's send in a, an antibiotic to smoke those guys so that the methanogen, because remember, there's no antibiotic to get rid of methanobrevibacter smithi. That's where we did all the research on Atrantil and Atrantil Pro because that has been shown in animals to actually decrease the methane production, and it does that. But there's no pharmacologic way to get rid of it. So he didn't hint, no, he did hint at it. He said, based on these studies, we're now in the process of developing some different drugs Mm. to try and help with this population. And he's trying to say that there's this clear relationship between this. So it really got to thinking, I'm like, wait a minute. When you look up these bacteria, the ruminococciae and the cristinocella, I'm like, these are actually uh, bacteria that produce quite a bit of short-chain fatty acids. So I contacted Sylvia Molino, our favorite PhD in this space, and she said, send me the article. This is really interesting because we're doing the same research, Uh and we're looking at how tannins can help with this. That's what cabracho and chestnut are. But on one of our prior article, on one of our prior podcasts, we got into the fact that in a certain environment, Uh you will have an uptick of bacteria. So is it that those two bacteria, yes, they may be producing hydrogen that the methane uses, but they're also producing other metabolites. You're, it's right where my mind's going. I'm gonna let you finish because I've got a question. Well, so it's like, is this cause and effect? Like if you didn't have them, would a more 
malicious bacteria be able to donate the hydrogen? Are these going up because they realize that everything's getting out of skew a little bit and the body's trying really hard to keep things in check? So what that is actually a, an, another alternative, I think, which is plausible. You, you could you could ob- obviously have bacteria that you don't want there proliferating and then simply donating the hydrogen anyway. And hydrogen through a biological process is oftentimes going to be free and available for uh, brevi to use because that's just what it does. Mm-hmm. But I think that this highlights, I think, why having the right amount of things such as um, a hydrogen sink style polyphenols available is so important to your health. It's another, it's just yet one more way that the strike and balance comes from having an appropriate diet or supplementation because you need short chain fatty acids. We've had episodes multiple times about SCFAs and why they're beneficial and why your body needs them. So shutting down that bacteria or killing it or removing it is probably not the answer. What you want to do is have the right things in check to stop the abundance of hydrogen where it doesn't belong. Yes. And so possibly having the Cabracho and Atron Teal or good colorful diet, Mediterranean style diets, which allow those polyphenols to make their way to the colon to essentially soak up the hydrogen just like the body is designed to do would prevent the overabundance of hydrogen being used to both produce um, methane as well as hydrogen sulfide where it doesn't belong. So what Eric's talking about is exactly why we use Cabracho and Chestnut. These are very large, stable tannins, which have what are called hydroxyl bonds all the way on the outside, and it works like a hydrogen sink. So as it moves around, it's like a sponge soaking up hydrogen. That's what we were looking at in the small bowel. And I actually went for the colon, like making sure you have good microbial diversity, but since it's poorly absorbed, meaning it will make it to the colon, Mm -hmm. it will continue to soak up that hydrogen. So yeah, so you don't want to completely starve, or, or I'm sorry, you don't want to just get rid of the bacteria that produce the hydrogen. You want to be able to have molecules that can soak up the hydrogen, keep it in balance so that the method, so that the methanobrevibacter doesn't just go willy nilly and grow everywhere and have what they call a methanogen bloom is the new term that he's doing. And this is all props to him for doing this yeah, kind of yeah, research because yeah, yeah. he's just blazing. And admittedly, I'm reading this, you're like, oh, this is a moving target the more we learn. Well, and, and another huge prop to Pimentel because this is not his original position. This is him adapting to new data. And there are a lot of people who won't do that. And it, like this, if, if you were to have had your conversation with Mark 10 years ago, he's not talking like that. No, he's not. He's saying we, we have to quit looking at poop, yep. period. And, but now he's saying, oh, well, it's kind of interesting. There is that thing where this goes, who knows? So then you're looking at this and saying, okay, should we get rid of the fusobacterium and the desulfovibrio? These are just crazy, (laughs) crazy names. Um, If you have hydrogen sulfide predominant, and if you do this, we need to get rid of the chrysanella and the rheumatococciae. So I'm really curious to see what Sylvia is going to say, because she's like, oh, I have a very strong opinion on this because this is the world she lives in how tannins affect these bacteria. And she's done research where we've talked about where when people take these tannins, they have increase in anti-inflammatory markers like butyrate and propionate and indole 3 propionate that we talked about. So I just think it's really interesting. And I wanted to get in front of it before the SIBO community started talking about it and trying to kill all these 
bacteria that actually may have some benefit. Maybe what we need to do is soak up the hydrogen first. Yeah, so. well, it's it's the difference between, uh, you know, when, when you can use a pellet gun to take out the rabbit or the bazooka. I mean, because eradicating them, I don't think is is the is the answer i mean I, I think that would be dangerous everything's everything's all about balance and check you know checks and balances so when you said that those words were a little bit hard and difficult to say it kind of reminded me of uh because th- some of these words are new follow me here so we had some people who um in the first year of the pandemic named their kiddos covid <laughs> and how long is it going to be till we have a methanobrevibacter uh enrolling in, in kindergarten yeah yeah this is this this is true yeah this is a. Uh, I, I literally just printed this and found it, and I said, "But man, we have to talk about this. Let's go over it. Let's just at least make sure that we can get in front of this. And Because in my world, um, once this becomes printed and doctors start looking at it, I want to make sure that I understand it before decisions are made. Knee-jerk reactions, basically what I'm saying. We don't need to knee-jerk on this. It's good information. I love it. I love the work they're doing. It made me a little nervous when he said this is going to be used in drug development. Yeah. Which... I don't like that part. I don't like that part. But he may have been, and knowing Mark, he may have been obligated to say that because it's. I mean, it's just unfortunately it's where some of his his funding comes from for him to do this research. Yeah. he has to leave that door open. Yeah, and this is. I mean, he's literally he's been doing it for twenty seven, oh, twenty eight yeah. years. This one particular thing. Sure. So you know, props. It's and there. So definitely, definitely. So if you're ever wondering what the connection was between Rob McElhaney, uh Ryan Reynolds, Mark Pimentel, and the FDA. This episode should have done it. Yeah, if you're sitting around doing that. Because that's, that's what everyone always talks to me about. How can we connect those four things? It's just, I, I, I get asked that question all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, like I'll, I'll be sitting there watching Deadpool and just be like, what's his deal with Methanobrevibacter, man? Is Pimentel going to come out in the show? <laughs> <laughs> so, kind of a, a little smattering, a smorgasbord of science and political views. So, And, and pop culture. Pop culture. Yeah. Pop culture. Yeah. Pol- you know, politics and, and, and soccer science. Teams. Soccer teams. And soccer teams. Yeah. Well, please like and share, like and share. The more that you can uh, go to iTunes and or Spotify and give us a five-star rating. And, of course, share this with your friends, your family. And, uh, I mean, each week the email increases. So, thank you all so much for writing in, giving us suggestions. And um, so, and for uh, Carl, who wrote in and said uh, that you like the blue shirt that I wear, Often I went ahead and put it back on. So thanks for noticing. Nice. It's not something that I ever keep track of. And he also mentioned that you seem to wear the same scrub top. So thank you for, for <laughs> noticing that I get to change. Um, yeah. And so if you're wondering actionable items, we still stand by the original thing. Mother Nature seems to know how to do it best. So get your daily dose of polyphenols and you can improve that with the biohack of using Atron Teal Pro, which has spore based biotics that help break down the cabracho and the chestnut so that you can experience the full benefit in your colonic microbiome. I, what's the word? Not flora, uh, tropical. Think of something that's just fauna. I don't know. What are the words to describe? I don't think it's fauna. Well, just, you know, I'm thinking of something lush and many different plants. That's how your microbiome should look. It should just look like this broad, group not a narrow you just want like a couple dandelions sitting in there you it need sh- like a full it should look like the fort worth japanese botanical gardens. there we go <laughs> turn <laughs> your microbiome into the fort worth japanese botanical gardens with atron Teal pro <laughs> you can go to kbmdhealth.com and start building your japanese garden in your colon thank you 
There we go. Take it easy. Episode 84. See you later. That's a wrap for this episode of the Gut Check Project, and we appreciate you for being a part of it. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find the GCP on Locals, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Rumble, and more. And you can always check out gutcheckproject.com to find all episodes and interact with the show. Tell your friends and family not to wait to get Gut Checked.